This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on The Table Podcast today is hypocrisy, deconstruction, and keeping the faith. I have a very special guest coming to us today via Zoom. She is Mary Jo Sharp. Mary Jo Sharp is the Assistant Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Hey, it's good to be back, Mikkel. Yes, we used to have you here in studio before uh, COVID happened, and uh, one day we'll have you back in studio again, Lord willing. Yeah, that'd be great. Next time you're back in Houston. Now, you're on the West Coast right now, yeah? Yes, out in Portland, Oregon. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Jo, you are known very well for the work you do in apologetics and defending the faith. And you also wrote this book called Why I Believe, and the subtitle is A Former Atheist's Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. And you describe this book as a kind of an anti-deconversion story of sorts. Uh, We hear of Christians, even high-profile Christian ministry leaders, uh, deconstructing, uh, re-examining things that they believed, um, and then end up deconverting. But in your case, this wasn't the path uh, that you took because you actually didn't start out believing in God. So tell us a little bit about your journey to faith. Yeah, so I, um, you're right, I grew up um, not only not believing in God, not being, I wasn't in a family that uh, went to church, but um, I was also in a part of the country that is not as culturally Christian as, say, like the Bible Belt South. Um, and I've lived in both, so I see, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there is a definite difference. And so my my background was that I grew up with a father who loved nature and science and the arts, and um, I developed such an awe and wonder at all the beauty that I saw in the world. And that was a, for me, that was sort of like I'm, I'm kind of making this big story short here, but the beauty that I saw in the world and what was it all for, you know, what was the, also the truth and goodness in our pursuit of the sciences and those sorts of things uh, brought me to a point in my later years of um, my teenage years um, of wondering, what is this all for? Hmm. And wondering like, is this, you know, are these, is this grand beauty I see in the universe and, and through what humans can do in the arts? Is it, you know, eventually it's just for nothing because the universe dies a heat death or something. And that's that. And that didn't make sense of my experience to me, but I had a um, I had a high school band director who was a Christian man who hadn't shared his faith, and specifically like with a student in the public mm. schools, he was he was very worried about that. But he was burdened for me, and in my senior year of high school, when I was going to you know go off to college, he said, "Hey, when you go off to college, you're gonna have hard questions." And he handed me a Bible and said, "I hope you'll turn to this." Hmm. And what he did was he kind of hit me at the right time when I was having these questions of meaning and purpose and what's all this beauty for. I, I had a really good high school music program. And so when I talk about being impacted by the arts, 
I was very personally impacted by the great beauty that we can achieve um, through the musical arts, for instance. So, you know, this he hit me at the right time when I started being able to formulate those thoughts. And when I went off to college, I started investigating church and faith on mm. my own. And I found a church where the gospel was clearly presented to me. And I understood, like, things started, I had read the Bible. I didn't say that. I started reading that Bible that he gave me and started coming around to, oh, this makes sense of all that I'm experiencing. It makes sense of the beauty I see in the world because there's like an artist behind it. Mm -hmm. And when I got to, um, you know, college and I started investigating on my own for the first time, I heard the, um, uh, you know, the gospel just communicated very clearly about our need for a savior. And that made sense to me. And that's when I became a believer in God was in college. Hmm. Well, when you decided to check out church and attend church for the first time. You tell a lot of uh, very personal stories, I think, in your book. And uh, God bless yeah. Roger for uh, allowing you to, to share a lot of these uh, back and forth with him. And some of these really uh, actually hurtful experiences that you had in the church and some of the hypocrisy that you saw. Tell us a little bit about your church experience as an atheist convert now going into church. Yeah, um, it was hard sharing these stories with Roger because he had to walk back through all of them with me and we had to choose which ones were more profitable to mm -hmm. share. And one of the ones that uh, I talk about, I think epitomizes you know some of the others and in, in, you could even say even the worst ones um, in that it was my very first day to go to church as a person who had just accepted Jesus. Uh, brand new believer. I'm coming out of Pacific Northwest atheism, and I'm coming into church in the, you know, in the Bible Belt into the Southern Evangelical Church. So it's a very different culture for me, and I'm, I'm excited because I found, you know, God, and mm -hmm. I found the church, and so I'm super excited to be a part of this. But then at the same time, I'm very nervous because uh, it's intimidating to me. I don't know anything about this culture. I. I've even at this point, I'm married to Roger and I'm trying to pick out a dress and I own two because we were both poor college students. And so he grew up in the church. So I'm trusting him. I'm like, okay, what, you know, is this all right? And he's like, oh, you look great. So we go off to church and I'm about to walk into the sanctuary where like, so now this is Southern Evangelical Church. So after you make a decision for Christ, you do this thing where you walk the aisle and you, you know, tell the whole church, you, you stand up there in front of the whole church and say that you've committed your life to Christ and you know, ask them to like vote on you for baptism. It's, it's <laughs> even when I'm saying it now, I'm like, wow, that's really intimidating. <laughs> um, but so I'm coming into the church that Sunday to do that. That's the service mm -hmm. that I'm going to be doing that at. And the the gentleman who led me to the Lord, his his wife, uh, he's the pastor of the church, and his wife is standing out in front of the sanctuary greeting people as they're going in. And so Roger and I are walking up, and she's smiling and everything, greeting people. And then she she sees me, she looks me up and down, and she says, "Oh, honey, we need to find you better clothes." The very first thing that I hear on my way in, you know, this excited but nervous and intimidated person um, coming mm. into this new culture. And that's mm. the first greeting I get by the pastor's wow. wife is that I'm inappropriately dressed. So I share that in that what that did for me was it sort of made me just like it planted seeds of distrust because it's mm -hmm. the wrong thing. <laughs> that should like, that's not what you should have said to me. I'm a brand new believer. How about like, Hey, I heard you came to a Christ. 
<laughs> so I was really shocked that the yeah. first thing that she was thinking of was how I looked. And, and it seemed very um, banal to me. Mm-hmm. It seemed very inappropriate. And I was immediately thrust into sort of a defensive position while I'm about to make this big commitment in my life. Hmm. So how did this, not just this particular situation, but but these kinds of hurtful, uh, some judgmental um, experiences, and, and even some of the authoritarianism, which honestly a lot of my friends who've walked away from church, whose uh, parents were even in ministry, um, found that kind of thing where, you know, you can't question and, and um, yeah. these kinds of things that you talked about. How did these things play into your doubts then? Yeah. So um, after years of really thinking on this, um, I came to realize that I had started to distrust the authorities in the church, the people who set themselves up with authority, saying they, you know, they were going to teach me God's word, and that they had the the authority to make decisions on you know the structure and and how church goes. I was starting to question them hmm. because you don't seem to hold yourself accountable to even basic scriptural truths. Um, so if you don't hold yourself accountable to live those things out in your life, then do you really, I started thinking, but then do you really believe in God? Because you say you believe in God, but mm-hmm. I'm seeing a whole lot in that's contradictory in your life to the Bible and to the teachings of Jesus and Paul. So I started thinking, okay, I can't trust you to, uh, be that authority that you set yourself up as. So, and that started to transfer to, does anybody believe in God at all? So I just started to mm. distrust a lot of things going on in the church. And then that eventually moves over to me distrusting God. And I realized how important that like shift was because, you know, God has personhood, mm-hmm. three persons of the Trinity. So as I begin to greatly distrust persons, it, it makes sense to me now that that transferred over to uh, God himself. Mm-hmm. So I, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned in your book that loss of faith is sometimes a loss of faith in people in the church. Is that kind of where where you were at that point? Yeah, I think um, I, I didn't really know what all was going on, but I knew that I very much disliked what I was seeing in the t- church because I had expected so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that, and I, I do mention in my book that was a bit naive and idealistic that I expected them to be better humans than just human beings that I encountered anywhere else. And yeah, I think that played heavily. It was uh, it led into emotional doubt, mm-hmm. you know, at first, and that emotional doubt. Uh, pushed me on to those sort of intellectual questions like, well, why do I see Jesus rose from the dead? Or why do I believe that the Bible's God's word? Or how do I even know God exists? You know, exists. So that sort of, um, yeah, the, the, the emotional doubt that I was experiencing from my engagements with people, uh, not just my personal engagements, but kind of watching how um, people behaved in the church in general, uh, transferred over and that caused that, you know, that doubt to come on pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to when you began to study apologetics at Viola University, my alma mater. Uh, one of the you know, we shared the same program that we graduated right. from, and uh, right there in La Mirada, California. How did that play into this whole time in your life? Oh, that was, you know, that was actually kind of like a I'll, I'll say a godsend, not mm-hmm. meaning to be punny, <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. I don't know. Is there a pun in there? There might be. But uh, it was a godsend for me because as I was having these doubts about believers um, and whether or not they were really committed to what they said they professed, 
I found this degree in Christian apologetics, which I never meant to do. Actually, I meant to get a master a master's of music education. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw an advertisement for Biola and I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. And I usually don't do that. I usually overanalyze everything. So going to Biola, um, I got there and, you know, well, I was doing the study distance and in person because they have a hybrid. So when I finally got there in person, I looked around at who was there and I saw these people who were giving up their time and money just to know God, like literally just to know um what is they believed and why they believed it. And they were willing to spend of their resources um, just to know God at a very deep level and to understand why they thought that. And it just so impressed me. I remember saying to my husband, I was like, honey, I found the church. They're hiding out in La Mirada, California. Because <laughs> I'd never experienced anything like this. And I don't mean to shame everybody else, but it's just because that's not everybody's thing right? Apologetics isn't everybody's thing. Um, but it just felt so like welcoming. And so and I'll use some of the deconversion terms. It felt very liberating hmm. to be around people that were serious about understanding why they believed what they did. Um, and that was just, it was a huge turnaround for me. And, and then I met such, I met some amazing people while I was there hmm. <laughs> who, who really uh, influenced my own Christian walk. So, Mm-hmm. So at this point, you know, you're, anyone working in this space uh, in, in helping to help people defend the faith and to think through the tough questions about Christianity, you get a lot of flack that just comes with the territory, right? Yeah. Um, how did you start to make sense of the hypocrisy you experienced in the church on the church side and then the flack that you got on the on the atheist side? No, oh, that's that's a fun question. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, that would go back to my understanding of the problem of evil. Um, you know, through apologetics, I was exposed to this philosophical and theological argument about um, uh, that experientially taught me that everybody is going to do wrong things. They're going to make wrong choices. And so I started to see that um, no matter what, no matter what I do, somebody is always going to be on the attack. And it was the problem of evil that made me really like, okay, breathe that in, Mm. (laughs) really take that into consideration that that's going to happen Uh, because I don't know where every individual is at in their own walk and their own spiritual journey. And so some of them are very not uh, believing, they don't believe in God, they're on the other side of things. And they're very, you know, some of those people, not all of them, are very angry with their experiences in the church. And so they dealt with hypocrisy in the church. They dealt with um, psychological abuses or traumas or things that happened in the church. And now there are some people out there that were engaging with me that were very angry um, about the church and the way that she had behaved in their own life. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, I considered, you know, I might be, I don't know who I'm encountering out there. Sometimes they're real friendly and, you know, every once in a while I get a real like intellectual person that would just want to engage me uh, as I was online. But sometimes I get people who are very angry and dealing with my own situation the hypocrisy that i saw amongst believers in the church i get that i understand mm-hmm, that like mm-hmm. i understand where they're coming from so i don't it's not intimidating to me i'd rather find out i'd rather get past like the ad hominems that come as a result and figure out where they're coming from um now you also asked about how that affected my view of the hypocrisy in the church mm-hmm. and you know what do i do with that and what what that did for me was um 
I'm going to nerd out a little bit. So it made me go into sort of a Obi-Wan Kenobi mode <laughs> after many years, um, studying the problem of evil and then understanding how that applied to the, the fact that a lot of people were doing things in the church that they would ultimately say that, you know, is wrong according to their belief in Jesus. Uh, and a lot of things would even be like unloving, quick to anger, vicious with their tongues, all sorts of stuff, backstabbing. Um, the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing, like when I studied the problem of evil and I saw how it related to Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, doing, I saw, I saw that he said, you have to love your enemies and do good mm -hmm. to those who basically aren't doing good to you, uh, which Chesterton says he, he believes that we're taught to love our neighbors, love our neighbors and love our enemies because so often they're the same person. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so I started to see through the problem of evil that everybody was around me was going to fail me. And not just in small ways, but in the worst ways. So there's my Obi-Wan Kenobi, like the people that I love the most, like Anakin Skywalker, mm -hmm. you know, are going to fail me. And sometimes uh, they're going to fail me in just the most, uh, the worst ways possible. Right. And so what do I do with that situation? Well, what did Obi-Wan do? Did, he doesn't fall to the dark side along with Anakin. He doesn't give up the Jedi ways. He actually says he's, you know, he'll do what he must. He has to stay committed to what he knows is true um, and to the, the teachings from his own master. So I sort of, boy, we combined a lot of stuff there, didn't mm -hmm. we? Like, <laughs> we combined Star Wars and Sermon on the Mount and the problem of evil. Um, but that's kind of how I saw things now mm -hmm. about the hypocrisy of believers is, yeah, they are capable of some of the most beautiful things um, because they're humans. So they can do great good. And at the same time, those same people can do some of the worst and most inhumane things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of this problem that we have as humans um, and that sin nature and you know, being having this fallen status is that we are prone to do the worst kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I like how in your book you actually encourage people as, as, as they are comfortable to do so to share some of these kinds of experiences, especially those of us who uh, have been doing some of these, you know, re-examining of things that we thought about the church and Christianity and yet uh, have not left the faith, even though we've been hurt by the church. And, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes when, when I share with people and I'm being honest with them, they go, well, I'm glad you're still a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I, but, I, I feel that. <laughs> but it's a special grace of God, at least, uh, you know, for, for me to think that at those points in my life, I was able to make a distinction from people who were not God, who were not representing God well, and who God actually is. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Yeah. And I love yeah. how, you know, there's this part in your, in your book where you say, it's hard to see the good that's actually there when you're so alert to the bad. But then you also say, 
what I'm going to do is still believe in God, but with a caveat that the answers of the Christian worldview are sometimes messy and that the faith can't be turned into a recipe for happiness. Unpack that a little for us and tell us about the reasons why you say that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that that's, I, you know, the, the church, what, one of the things I say is that um, the litmus test for the truth of Christianity can't be the behaviors of Christians, right? And that would be true for any worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say that with a caveat that, you know, Jesus actually taught, or he didn't teach, he was praying. <laughs> it was so important. He's praying about it. Uh, in the garden, John 17, that the way that we treat one another, basically our unity mm-hmm. is how the world will know that he's God's son. And that I think that's sort of lost on a lot of Christians is that the way that we treat one another is a testimony to whether or not Jesus is the real deal. Um, so I, I've, for me, if you want me to unpack it, like where am I at kind of thing on this? Mm-hmm. Um, is that, again, I know, I know that people are going to fail me, um, and fail me hard. And so what I, what I have to do, I may have gotten off topic here. You can steer me back around, Mikkel, but what I have to do is I have to make sure that in the church that I'm treating other people the way that I would want to be treated, um, because I'm responsible for the John 17 passage. I'm responsible for trying to bring about um, the unity of believers, this idea that we can disagree or we can have differences of opinion, but I'm still responsible for excellence in relationship with others. And that that actually, that part actually testifies to the truth of Jesus as God's son. So I, a lot of times I, I have this feeling that people um, believe that their commitment stops at rational propositions mm-hmm. and the truth of those, but they need to take it into consideration. Well, what does that mean about how you should live your life and how you should treat other people? Cause there's an objective truth to be found there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this idea of being objectively loving. Um, and, you know, Jesus teaches us both that they go together. So I, for me personally, and I really do think I've gotten far off from your questions. <laughs> yeah, like I said, steer me back around if we need to. But I have to, um, I try to make sure that what I'm doing in my daily walk, um, no matter what anybody else in the church is doing, no matter mm-hmm. how they've hurt me, um, my responsibility. Um, and it's not just a responsibility. It's sort of like it, it's ministering to my own soul is to be in right relationship with Jesus and for me to do what's right uh, and not worry about are other people going to treat me well, because I know they're not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, this is the reality of living in the fallen world. So um, it comes across a lot, though, as a glass half empty type situation. And it's not really it allows me space to enter back into the church. Um, with a little more wisdom about what I should encounter there. Hmm. Hmm. So, so now bring me back around. Did I answer the question or did I take it off <laughs> so, somewhere well, else? You said that the you know faith can't be turned into a recipe for happiness. So ah, think- that's what it was. Thank you. Um, so the yeah, it's really odd that we don't teach more on the suffering of like Job or on the suffering of Christ because. Hmm. Or when Paul says he counts it all joy in his suffering. Um, I think it's tough for us living in a country where we don't really suffer as much 
um, sometimes in you know physical ways, like we don't have to worry as much about where food's coming from or shelter or things like that. When we live in sort of a wealthy society, we don't really suffer um, like we see some of the early Christians suffering where they were heavily persecuted to death um, in the worst ways. Mm-hmm. And to where we see people across the world who, you know, don't eat tonight or whatever, those kinds of things. So we don't really, to me, we don't really understand um, suffering as well. And so we make Christianity into sort of a, uh, it should make us happy. And happiness is sort of a fleeting idea because you you go through stages throughout your day. It's like sort of emotional connected where you can mm-hmm. be happy or you can be sad. And those things can happen even within a day, you can just rifle through different emotions. I think what we need to teach in the church is that, that what is, what is joy, right? And where do you get joy and peace from? And I think faith has a lot to do with uh, grounding joy and grounding our peace in any kind of circumstance. Even when you're not happy, you can have that joy of the Lord that is persistent through suffering. And it's not a happiness, it's an understanding of your relationship with God that He is present with you it, through these kinds of sufferings. So it it's a um, it kind of builds for you a steady a steady place to encounter some of these more difficult things that are going to happen in the church with other believers, with the hypocrisy, with the problem of evil going on. This stance that Paul takes that there is great joy just in knowing the Lord is really important for Christians to grasp. And it's, I think it's hard. I don't think I'm all the way there. I think it's a maturing process. Like becoming Christ-like is seeing what is good and true and beautiful in the world in the midst of suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was William Lane Craig who said that what brings lasting human fulfillment is really the knowledge of God and relationship with Him. And yeah. so that's lasting human fulfillment, right? And yet we're not always happy and the world is messy and the church is messy, but that's just reality. And, you know, one day God will right all wrongs, but until then, here we are. So, Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, you know, on that note, Mikkel, and it's, it's not just in the end, right? Jesus did say that he, um, you know, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. If he is who he said he was, he's brought it to us. Mm-hmm. So he's repent or not repentance. Redemption is already, but not yet. Yeah. So we already have that ability to live in the redemptive love of God and to be that live in that redemption for the sake of others. Right. That's right. As, as well as waiting for it to come uh, in its fullness. Yeah, yeah, we have enablement from the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life, and the church needs to be this this outpost of God's kingdom on earth, so that people can see uh, this this kingdom breaking through more and more. Well, yeah. what would you say to somebody who is uh, where you were back in the day, and uh, you know, struggling with with the hypocrisy in the church? Um, you know, de de uh, what's the word? Not deconverting yet. Um, Deconstructing. Oh, deconstructing. And, yeah, sorry. just kind of looking at uh, what they've been taught and uh, wrestling with their doubts. What piece of advice would you give to somebody like that? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell them is it's absolutely okay to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, I What I dealt with, what caused me to go into such uh, sort of a visceral doubt is that I never encountered anybody going through it in the church or telling me it was okay to go through it. The church always stood like they assumed the truth of everything they believed and then taught on that so anybody who was doubting 
was sort of marginalized because either it wasn't talked about or wasn't, um, it made everybody else uncomfortable in the room, you know? Mm. So I just, I want to give a person who is going through a time of doubt, um, sort of the um, encouragement that it's okay. And you can see that in Luke 7. If you'll read through the passage on John the Baptist sending his um, disciples to Jesus to say, Mm -hmm. hey, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And it's a really important passage for us because Mm -hmm. he's the prophesied messenger of the Messiah and he's asking him, are you the Messiah? (laughs) If he can have a doubt, so can we, right? So I want to encourage that. And then I want to say, um, just in short, there's a lot of stuff I want to say, but I'll give one, which is always consider what you're going to. Okay, so deconstruction is all about picking apart the Christian faith, if you're a Christian, right? So you pick apart the Christian faith, and people will say, you know, this this is a problem for me, or this part of, you know, maybe it's the problem of evil, maybe it's the science and religion, or whatever they're trying to work mm-hmm. through. But then they don't talk about, so if I don't believe in Christianity— then what am I going to believe? Mm-hmm. And really work through that, deconstruct that worldview as well. What are you going to? So I ask this because I think what's happening is a lot of the Christian philosophical framework is actually coming along into that new belief, but they're saying they reject it. So uh, like a basis for good and evil, justice, injustice, mm-hmm. um, things like that are, are seeping along and creeping into um, like an atheism, where at the base of the universe, the universe is void of good and evil, or you know those kinds of notions of justice and injustice. That's not in that framework. So if you are a person who is very much committed, maybe to this idea that there is justice mm-hmm. in the world, then you need to ground that. Yeah. And if you if you're deconstructing Christianity, which provides a solid basis for things like that, or for or for idea like hope or human rights, you know. You got to say to yourself, well, what am I stepping into? Um, because that's so important. You're not walking into a void. You're walking into another philosophical framework. And what does that entail for you? Mm-hmm. Now, you got an image of somebody who, uh, you know, like takes apart a computer or something to, to learn how it works and to, to re-examine it. And, and maybe some people are kinesthetic learners in terms of uh, their spiritual and uh, philosophical views as well, and they need to re-examine um, but if faith deconstruction is a kind of pulling apart of your belief system and church experiences to really examine each part of it, and I think one thing that your story shows us is that uh, deconstruction doesn't always have to lead to deconversion. And I really liked how, I think you tweeted that once, and I really <laughs> like that. Yeah, so, I did, I did. I, I don't think it ends up there. Sometimes when you deconstruct something, it just ends up in you really understanding it better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's okay to doubt, and doubt sometimes uh, leads us to better, uh, better places and uh, better spiritual growth as well. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You, know, you can grow to understand your, um, your God. Uh, you can grow to have a stronger relationship with Him in, under- in knowing who He is. Yeah, well, thanks so much for spending time with us. Mary Jo Sharp's book is Why I Still Believe. Um, Thanks for being on the show, MJ. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. You're welcome, and good to see you too. And we hope that you will stay with us on the table as we continue to discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario. Please do uh, subscribe and uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out the show, helps other people discover our content. And we hope we'll see you next time as we continue to discuss issues of God and culture. 
for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.